Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. In his short but important essay, How to Seem Virtuous Without Actually Being So, Alistair McIntyre is going to outline for us four important questions that he takes any serious person who really has the virtues in mind to be addressing in one way or another. And the formulation that he actually has is when someone utters what he or she takes to be a well-founded and thought out judgment on the basis of some tolerably systematic and coherent understanding of the virtues, he or she is characteristically committed to giving answers of a certain kind for four different questions. And we're going to look at those in just a minute, but think about what he's actually saying here. So when somebody is uttering a judgment, when they're saying something like, oh, that person is brave, or that person is self-controlled, or that person, we could talk about the vices as well, that person is cowardly, or that person is stingy, or that person is greedy, right? So well-founded, actually based in something, thought out, not just complete snap judgments, but actually, you know, some basis of thought. And then he says, some tolerably, and I think that that tolerably qualifier there is pretty important, systematic and coherent understanding. It doesn't have to be a completely coherent, completely systematic. So this means that people who are studying the virtues, trying to cultivate the virtue, but don't have a synoptic understanding of it because they're not Aristotle or Seneca or pick whoever else you want, or Alistair McIntyre for that matter. They are making judgments that could be tolerably systematic and coherent based in that of the virtues. And so they have to give answers. And again, of a certain kind. They don't have to be absolute, cover everything sort of answers, but they have to be answers that are to some degree satisfying. And so what are these four questions? Now, it's important to note that McIntyre sometimes promises to do things in a certain way and then doesn't quite do that. So not all of these are actually framed as questions, but they can all be turned into questions. You know, for example, question number three, he doesn't actually have a question in there (laughs) anyway, but that's okay. So what is the first question? Well, he says it has to do with counterfactual judgments. And so what are counterfactual judgments? If you're not used to using that terminology, you have been using them your entire life. A counterfactual judgment is saying what would have been the case or what would a person have done or what would my response be if conditions were different than they actually were. So they're contrary or counter to how things are, the facts. And you're saying, what if a different set of facts were the reality that I was facing? And so McIntyre says, we can say, what would this person have done if things were different? 
He says, we engage in counterfactual judgments about what he or she would have done if such and such, which did not in fact occur, had occurred, or if such and such, which has not yet occurred, were to occur. What am I committed to in saying this thing? So we can say, oh, you know, I have no problem being temperate that is controlling my desires for bodily pleasures. But what if I went to Las Vegas, the city proverbially of sin, where there's there's a million opportunities to indulge my appetites in every way. And what if it was old-fashioned Vegas, where the buffets were super cheap and I could stuff my face all, all day long? Now, I'm not, in fact, doing that, but how would I behave? Would I still remain temperate or would I show myself to be a glutton or would I be abstemptious and be like, oh, I don't like that sort of thing, right? These are counterfactual judgments. And as McIntyre is going to point out, answering this question is important, not just in terms of what I didn't do because the situation didn't call for it, but what I would do in the future. What if somebody does give me an invite to some place. And it's like dessert world. You can have every kind of dessert that you like and they're all super tasty. Would I indulge myself, right? Or what would I do in, people think about these situations all the time. What would I do if I was placed in this situation that demanded courage? Now I'm too old to fight in a war, but what if the enemy came here to America? Would I join the resistance movement and fight against them? Or would I be a collaborator? Well, those are counterfactual judgments about things that have not yet come to pass. So futures, right? So this is important because what determines whether you really are virtuous or not is the range of things that, you know, if we tweak the situation, you might do differently. So that's the first question. He says the second question concerns the type of reason for acting as he or she does. So if we judge that somebody is brave or generous or just, he says that it's the contention of every tolerably systematic and coherent understanding of the virtues, that to be virtuous, it's not sufficient just to do what a virtuous person does. You have to do it motivated by the right reasons. Aristotle framed this in terms of not just the on the account of, but also knowing what it is that you're doing, being conscious of choosing something. So McIntyre says the relevant actions need to be performed for what are taken by adherence of that particular standpoint as the right types of reason. And so he's going to frame this actually in terms of a question a little bit later. He says, for what reasons did this person act as he or she did? And he also points out, this is very important, the second question is not logically independent of the answer to the first question. What counterfactual judgments are entailed or implied by this judgment that someone is virtuous. If we want to know why somebody would have behaved differently in a hypothetical situation, we also need to take into account the motivations, the reasons that they would be able to provide themselves and others. And so he, he's got a great example here of somebody encountering a live grenade. Now, are they going to pick it up and throw it away to demonstrate their baseball prowess as an outfielder? Outfielders in baseball have to throw the ball very far, right? Or are they doing it in order to save a child? 
right? The one is not really a virtuous thing to do. The other is definitely a virtuous thing to do. You know, if you're placing yourself in danger just because you want to look cool or try out your skills, uh, that's not really courage. So that's the second question. Now let's look at the third question. McIntyre doesn't talk about this one all that much, but this is actually very important. And we should point out, so McIntyre a little bit later in this essay is gonna say, hey, I just wanna let you know that what I'm really doing here is from an Aristotelian point of view, pleasures and pains and whether we feel them or not in relation to the actions that we do or witness, incredibly important from an Aristotelian virtue ethics perspective, not as important from some other virtue ethics perspectives, like say Stoic philosophy or you know some of the others that we might bring up as alternatives. So McIntyre says, a third question to which an answer is characteristically implied is what was it both in the situation and the action which pleased or pained the agent? And he says to the question about the virtuous agent's reasons, there is added this question. Now he reframes it here. And this is very important to pay attention to. His responses of feeling and desire. So we have pleasure and pain, which are affective, right? And we have feeling. Feeling is emotion. So this could be the emotions of say anger or fear, which are not exactly the same thing as pleasure and pain and desire. Now, some of the emotions are in fact desires. For example, Aristotle will define anger, which is a very long, complicated definition of the rhetoric, as including a desire, an orexis, an affect, that is aiming at retribution or imposing something on another person, right? So the affective side of our being incredibly important. So we've got the cognitive side, we've got the affective side, we've got this counterfactual, what would they do in different situations? And then the fourth really ties it together. He says, a fourth question to which some answer is characteristically presupposed. And here we get a very long question, right? Is what range of different types of action performed by some particular individual in different types of situations provides a sufficient warrant for such an ascription of a virtue to an individual? So there's a few technical terms in here. When we say sufficient warrant, what we're saying is good enough reason, right? Good enough justification. What justification do we have for ascribing a virtue to this particular individual? Ascription means saying that that's the case of them, right? So maybe that's clear enough at this point. Now notice what range of different types of action in different types of situation. What we're talking about there is what in other contexts we might call transfer from one context to another. So if somebody is going to be viewed as courageous or just, let's just use those as examples, we don't want to see them behaving courageously just in one kind of situation or justly like honoring obligations in one type of situation. Maybe they can be courageous 
courageous when it comes to the battlefield, but they're actually cowards when it comes to facing up their fears of doing public speaking or facing the trauma that they need to look at in therapy or dealing with other people in their neighborhood, or perhaps they're just in the workplace, but then with their neighbors, they behave in a very different way. If that's the case, then we wouldn't say that they're actually virtuous. We want to see sort of an even keel across a variety of different situations, or we could say areas of life. And if that's the case, then we can say that the person is actually virtuous. And so he, he goes on and he says that, you know, there's this additional requirement that instances be of sufficiently different types to justify the relevant set of extrapolations to counterfactual conclusions and the relevant set of inferences to judgments about the agent's reasoning and about what it is in which he or she takes pleasure or by which he or she is pained. And he says, to this fourth question, adherence of a variety of systematic standpoints give a more precise, detailed, and determinate answer than that presupposed by those who are doing no more in what they say about the virtues than giving expression to present-day commonplace usage. If you really want to be claiming that somebody is temperate or somebody is generous or somebody, even, you know, to take one of Aristotle's other virtues has a good sense of humor, has the virtue of wit. Well, then this fourth question, which ties the rest of them together, is incredibly important. So notice we can frame these as questions. We can also frame these as sort of subject areas in which we see what virtue actually consists in. Any virtue ethics theory that is worth calling that, according to Alistair McIntyre, has to address these four for questions and do so in a relatively systematic and coherent way. That, he takes it, is the essence of any genuine ethics of virtue. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.